Regina Agu has been researching and engaging green spaces in Houston, especially to understand the legacy of communities of color in these spaces. As an artist in a city where zoning laws or lack thereof impacts preservation, Agu has traced the ways artists are on the forefront of innovating around and along those parameters. I think that artists in Houston are actually quite vocal, um, some of the more vocal constituents who are really thinking through, okay, what can historic preservation look like given the policies and, you know, rules on the books in Houston. Agu has been a visiting artist and researcher of Project Row Houses in the University of Houston, where she studied the psychogeography of Emancipation Park. She's witnessed the aftermath of monument takedowns in New Orleans and seen firsthand how artists can take the lead in reclaiming and renaming public spaces. Agu's project Expanding Monuments is included in the Highline Joint Art Network's New Monuments for New Cities project. Over the last six months, Monument Lab has been research residents of this project, and we're speaking with artists from each of the five partner cities, New York, Chicago, Austin, Toronto, and Houston, about monuments, memory, and public space. I'm your host, Paul Farber. This is Monument Lab. we explore stories and critical conversations around the past, present, and future of monuments. We speak to people on the front lines, building the next generation of public spaces through stories of social justice and equity. Here are the monumental people, places, and ideas of our time. Regina Agu, welcome to the Monument Lab podcast. Thank you so much. How did you start thinking about monuments? So I've been doing, through some of my research for different projects in my practice, I look a lot at um, the built environment and kind of different frameworks of thinking about public space, private space, changes in development and land policy, just kind of like a range of ways of approaching not just urban, but but thinking it like in landscapes in a broad sense. And so after being based in Houston for so many years, I really started thinking about some of our local relationships to monuments, historic preservation, parks, and, you know, things of that nature. So um, this is something I've been interested in for a long time in my practice. And so it was really exciting to have a chance to bring some of that forward in the New Monuments Project. What is the dynamic of historic preservation in Houston? Because I think there's a reputation about the lack of zoning laws as something that kind of rings out nationally. But how does it appear to you? You know, as you mentioned, Houston is famous, infamous, depending on how you look at it, for (laughs) our um, lack of zoning uh, regulations. And so essentially what that means is that Houston has um, 
a really market-driven approach to development, I think, compared to other cities. And um, some people would even go so far to say that it's kind of a neoliberal approach to development. And so what that means is that historic preservation is extremely difficult. It's, uh, and it's reflected when you go around and, and drive through Houston you know, uh, there's so much new development and new construction happening all the time. Um, It is a young city. It's a growing city. It's a sprawling city. So that is part of it. But a lot of um, neighborhoods, for example, where I've been doing a lot of work during my time there um, in Third Ward, for example, there's a constant kind of ongoing set of pressures that accelerate uh, the process of gentrification in a very particular way in Houston. But then um, some of the measures that you might see uh, taking place in other cities where historic preservation can occur to kind of preserve some of the older uh, examples of architecture, uh, infrastructure, it's not really possible in Houston for those models to take place. Um, A good example of that is when you're looking at, for example, what's been happening in Fourth Ward, Freedmanstown, which is kind of an older example of what gentrification can look like in Houston. Fourth Ward was Freedmanstown. It was where a lot of formerly enslaved people were able to settle in Houston and really did build their own infrastructure, their own communities, schools, Um, hand-paved the streets and things like that. And because of the challenges of historic preservation in Houston, there's always battles about um, the paved roads being cemented over. Um, A lot of the buildings were not able to be preserved. Sometimes I wonder if it's public awareness that may be part of that, but historic preservation itself, it's just really hard. And so there's really like, uh, especially in Fourth Ward, there's kind of this ongoing devastation of a really rich history um, that I think would probably have been preserved in different ways in other in other cities if those options were available. As an artist, is there a, a space for you, you know, at the table, so to speak, in historic preservation conversations, or do you have to find your own lane uh, to intervene? I think that artists in Houston are actually quite vocal. Um, some of the more vocal constituents who are really thinking through, okay, what can historic preservation look like given the policies and, you know, rules on the books in Houston? And for example, uh, if you, you mentioned, um, when we spoke previously about getting to know, uh, the Sankofa Research Institute and ASADA, um, so if you met Asada and uh, saw the work that she's doing with the Sankofa Research Institute, you may have come across, for example, the EEDC, which is the Emancipation Economic Development Council. There are a lot of really incredible artists, creatives um, who are part of that, in addition to a wide range of constituents. And so there are artists who are working kind of at the forefront, growing and developing initiatives that can be used to preserve and kind of halt the really kind of rapid form of gentrification that happens in Houston. Looking at the EEDC as an example, you know, a lot of these measures, I think, are being implemented for the first time in thinking about how uh, Third Ward can be a model for other parts of the city and think um, historic preservation and how that can kind of protect community assets. I mean, this seems to really resonate with your Highline Joint Art Network 
proposal mm-hmm. expanding monuments. Yes. Um, could you could you describe the poster, the proposal itself? Absolutely. So when I was approached to uh, you know design something for the um, project, I had um, been actually last year. I spent a lot of time um, shooting and revisiting various sites in Houston um, that were familiar to me um, in Third Ward, as an example. Um, And so I have this ongoing project where I've been going back and documenting, for example, um, historic buildings, um, vacant areas of land, um, properties that are under development, and just kind of in a way, it's almost like a kind of like a time lapsing of just seeing how quickly the landscape and the built environment in neighborhoods like Third Ward can turn itself over because of, you know, private development interests. And so I was already thinking about that and developing this series of images when I was approached by the, um, you know, the Highline and Buffalo Bayou Partnership for the New Monuments Project. So I really wanted to think about how to represent those changes in development over time also to reflect like how quickly it happens and then to think of ways through imagery to show um, these changes from you know for example open field and you know kind of green space and how quickly that changes into scaffolding tarps and then this kind of refracting that happens within the image uh also thinking about who's now shut out of that development when it's happening and who is that development happening for. So I really wanted to create an image that speaks to a lot of those different kind of conflicting interests and tensions, which is how, you know, I started to approach the design. There was another part of it though, when I received the invitation to uh, participate in the project, I was actually um, working in New Orleans on um, something separate. And I was really um, speaking with people in New Orleans about the removal of the Robert E. Lee Monument, um, which took place um, during one of my site visits. I was also interested in thinking about that conversation and um, thinking about the potential impermanence of monuments also. And so that was something that really influenced how I approached the new monuments project. I want to get back to your proposal. But first, um, you mentioned that you were in New Orleans in the aftermath of the removal of the Robert E. Lee monument. What was that like for you? I happened to be in New Orleans during the summer of 2017. And uh, it was right in the aftermath of the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue. And um, I believe that I was in town just a couple of days after the removal happened. And so I knew that the conversation was taking place. I saw in the news how it was something that happened, uh, I guess, in the evening. And so I was visiting New Orleans uh, to do some research for another project. And I happened to walk by and see uh, the column where the statue used to be. So even though the statue itself is removed, you still had the column, you had the park space. I was very aware of how the design and architecture of that site 
would lead you around the statue in kind of a circular moment. So I was still very aware of like the monumentality of that site, even though the statue of Robert E. Lee was no longer present. And so it got me thinking about not just about, you know, statues themselves, but also this sort of um, what really goes into the design and decision-making and building of these sites of, of reverence and history and historical narrative. Thinking about that, you know, it's something that really struck me at the time. And so when I had a chance later on to participate in the New Monuments Project, and I happened to be in New Orleans again, working on some different work, that kind of like ghost of the Robert E. Lee statue was very present for me in thinking about my own work. And it also got me to think again about how monuments can shift and change, how public opinion really matters, um, how we're in a moment where we're really reconsidering how decisions and how historical narratives result in monuments, but then how those things are not impermanent and how they can change. And so that thinking about change and temporality really affected how I approached my own work for the New Monuments Project. You know, your proposal brings together, as you said, a number of different sites and even ways of looking at the city's memory landscape. What are the places that are referenced or represented in Expanding Monuments? The sites that I shot in Expanding Monuments were part of my daily walk. I am one of the few people in Houston, and this is actually a kind of a rare, a rare occurrence. I actually am one of the few people in Houston that had my apartment, my job, and my studio all within walking distance of each other, which is not something that happens very <laughs> often. As I'm sure you're aware, when you visited Houston, it is very much a car city. Everything is designed to be driven through. Walking is just not something that, that happens that often. It's not how we're really accustomed to navigating the city. Because I was able to kind of walk in my day-to-day life, and then I also have kind of walking through built environments informs a lot of my work and how I think about sites to begin with. I just started kind of shooting my, uh, the places that were closest to me. So the sites that you see in new monuments, I focused on one block that I would pass by on an almost daily basis that had, uh, it was in the museum district, which is, um, itself kind of a contentious term because the boundaries of Old Third Ward, the Almeida Corridor, and the Museum District, those boundaries are very fluid depending on who you ask and I guess how close you are to the new development. (laughs) And so um, I was just thinking about the site of these really large museum anchor cultural institutions. There are also some old homes and historic buildings in the area, and this ongoing tension about new luxury development that's occurring. So I shot this one site that kind of reflected all of those three, I guess, competing interests. And so in the photos that you see in my Expanding Monuments piece, you'll see um, green spaces. Uh, There are tree leaves and things that are reflected in, in some of the images. You'll see scaffolding, you'll see tarps, which, you know, I always joke to people about how 
tarps are such a, you know, like a landscape feature of Houston in the parts that I live in. You know, they're just everywhere signifying new development, not just in what's coming, but I guess what's being torn down. You'll see all of that. And then you'll also see kind of new development going up. So I went back to the same area. I shot it over a period of several months. I already had these images and was thinking about what I could do with them. And so in expanding monuments, I really wanted to bring in images that um, showed all of these different ways of thinking about this one site in terms of development, what could be there, how that site could be approached what memories and histories are being erased through new development, but then also who has access to the new site. Yeah, that's the imagery that you're looking at in the photographs. In your writing, you said that this is a monument that is imagined as constructed, but not installed. Right. Um, How do you think that this proposal, you know, even in theory, interacts with other monuments that you've encountered in Houston or elsewhere. And, you know, I have to say one thing that that comes to my mind, I don't know if it was intentional Mm -hmm. or not, but when I see the tarp, um, I think of Charlottesville and the Robert E. Lee statue that um, (laughs) was was under tarp um, for some time as like a suspended moment of like, Um, development or redevelopment or don't look here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up because um, that's an interesting thread that ties into um, my Emancipation Park um, research, which is a separate project. As I'm, you know, is creating these photographs and really just observing changes and competing interests over time, I really wanted to kind of conceptually think through, okay, If instead of thinking about a monument as something that marks like a singular historic figure or a a particular historic narrative, what if instead we could think about a monument as something that shifts and changes, something that's open to new voices being brought in, something that um, continues to reflect the um, shifts in memory and history of a site as time goes on. I didn't want to create, for example, a proposal for a new statue or a new object to be installed. I really wanted to think about, you know, conceptually, could we think about monuments as something that um, grows spatially? Think about it in terms of relationships rather than objects. And to think about, you know, shifts in time and our relationship to changes in um, changes in narrative and history. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, what I created was a proposal, I guess, for a conceptual monument. <laughs> and so um, it was really fun to work on that, but it was also um, for me very satisfying because it was a way to represent all of these different questions and research interests that have come up through my work over time as I've been able to not just think about uh, changes in Houston, but also changes in other um, urban areas like, you know, New Orleans, for example, um, that I mentioned earlier. In thinking about those relationships, um, you've been a longtime collaborator with Houston's Project Row Houses. That's right. And um, you, as you mentioned, have um, devoted research 
to uh, the nearby Emancipation Park. And of course, they're quite close spatially, but one of the dividing lines is Emancipation Avenue, mm-hmm. which used to be um, Dowling Street, for, named after a Confederate that has been recently renamed. Mm-hmm. When you're kind of interacting with those spaces or with, with people in those spaces, how do those relationships um, between art spaces, public spaces, and spaces of of memory play out in your work? Using the uh, Emancipation Park research as an example, um, I was um, selected for a fellowship last year uh, with the um, Catherine G. McGovern College of the Arts at University of Houston in Project Row Houses. And I used the fellowship year to produce um, research and thinking and photographs around Emancipation Park. And I think this is a really good example that kind of speaks to those relationships that you just talked about, because Emancipation Park has a really dynamic history in not just in Third Ward in Houston, but, you know, kind of for the the country at large, really. Emancipation Park is the site of where um, a group of formerly enslaved people in the 1870s, led by uh, Reverend Jack Yates, pooled their money together and purchased acreage so that they could safely celebrate Juneteenth, which originates um, actually just south of Houston in Galveston, Texas. It's where um, two years after emancipation, enslaved people in Texas um, belatedly found out that they had been um, emancipated. And so that date, when General Granger in Galveston read that announcement, Juneteenth marks the date. And so um, Reverend Yates and his peers that were able to pull some money together to purchase this parkland wanted to have you know, a safe site where they could annually celebrate this really important moment of emancipation. And over time, You know, the park was acquired by the city of Houston for various reasons. It was not uh, developed the way that other park spaces in the city were. Community groups and artists got involved through Friends of Emancipation Park. It then, uh, the Emancipation Park Conservancy later came out of that. There was just a major $30 million um, investment by the city of Houston into the park. So it's now kind of a jewel of the city. But because of that investment, it's also, you know, creating additional pressures on the neighborhood um, surrounding it. So now you have more development coming in. You have people that want to live next to Emancipation Park that would not otherwise have come into the Third Ward area. And so um, I think Emancipation Park on its own is a really just fascinating microcosm of these different relationships between arts institutions, artists, community members, city, you know, public money, private development interests that are now trying to capitalize on this new public space. You know, having a chance last year to talk to people, community members, people that were uh, part of the old Friends of Emancipation Park group, people that were part of the new conservancy, community groups that had various relationships to kind of both sides of that spectrum. And then also um, just seeing how the park space itself 
changed over time. You know, I moved back to Houston during a time when the old Emancipation Park buildings were still present. And so I've also seen over time how that land has changed and how its relationship to the neighborhood has changed. It's a really fascinating and dynamic example of how histories and narratives can shift over time and how different interests can play a very active part in how public space changes and adapts. And so I was really happy to spend a year um, developing research that was able to kind of speak to all of those different things. And so that's, that's one reason why Emancipation Park was where I decided I wanted to spend the year to develop research because I felt like it spoke so clearly to these other things that I'd been thinking through conceptually and materially in my previous work. In your residency research focused on Emancipation Park, in talking to people specifically, those who were familiar with the space before this massive investment and the change to being a conservancy, what did you learn from speaking uh, to people who had seen the different generations of the park? And how did that correspond with what you observed yourself? So some of the conversations that I had with community members who, um, you know, for example, may have been younger or may have, you know, even been children and had played in the old Emancipation Park space decades ago before it fell into disrepair and then um, kind of continued on its way to becoming the park that it is today, you know, there was a real awareness of the importance of that space not just in Third Ward, but, you know, for example, in the state of Texas, Emancipation Park is, um, and there, you know, there is some, I guess it depends on how you date the actual acquisition um, by the city, but it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest public park in the state of Texas. And the fact that it was founded by formerly enslaved people is just it's, it's really incredible to think about, but it's also a history that not necessarily everyone is aware of unless you have this kind of, you know, really close relationship to the space. And so I talked to people who were not just historically invested, but also personally invested because they had a very real personal relationship to the park as children, as young adults, and now seeing the changes you know, there's a sense of, you know, on one hand, it's really incredible to have the city show all of this interest and to, you know, bring the park up to, well, for Houston, um, you know, modern park standards and to, you know, really see this history being invested in, in a particular way, creating these really fantastic buildings and having new landscaping and all of this upgrades to infrastructure and things like that. But I think, um, you know, something that I was very made very aware of in these conversations are that, you know, the, and I want to say this carefully, (laughs) but the um, people that now visit the park, the sorts of neighbors and visitors and programs that are taking place in some cases are dramatically different from what used to be there. I observed, but I was also made aware through these really kind of interesting, intimate conversations on, on one hand, um, 
this really incredible investment and how this history is being cemented in a particular way. But then also, you know, these other more like personal memories and narratives that are now maybe not as present as they were when the old buildings and the old site was was available to the public. So it's kind of a an interesting an interesting balance. I think, you know, over the year I talked to people, community members, nonprofits, community organizations that the responses to the development are just very, you know, they're they're varied. And I think that Friends of Emancipation Park, which predated the Conservancy, was really a community-driven effort. Um, the Conservancy is also very much, um, you know, in touch with the community, but I think in a different way, as conservancies are. You know, it's a different type of funding structure. It's a different relationship to the city of Houston. And so all of that comes into play when you're thinking about how people relate to the new park space. What is the relationship between the this conversation you're picking up on in the park and the adjacent street now named Emancipation Avenue, uh, but changed from its former name honoring a Confederate commander? The renaming of Emancipation Park was an initiative led by community members, activists, people that were... Um, very invested and interested in um, thinking about kind of shifting that conversation away. In a way, it very clearly uh, ties into some of the conversations happening around, you know, Confederate monuments, you know, what we were speaking about earlier. But thinking about how can we kind of shift away from this these monuments and naming, which, you know, what, you know, is, a, is an act of, I think, monumentalizing certain narratives, certain historical figures, but how can that shift to something that reflects more of the interests of the community itself, um, the histories that, you know, we want to protect and invest in. Um, and then when I say we, I lived in Third Ward for a number of years. And so, you know, I definitely feel not just in terms of my work, but, you know, also being a renter and a community member and somebody that really found a creative home in the neighborhood. And so um, how can community members think about um, kind of reshaping those narratives around naming and place and placemaking and site? But again, you know, even though a lot of community members were involved um, in the renaming, you know, again, it, it wasn't um, just a straightforward decision. Um, you know, I remember being on Facebook and seeing um, some older community members who were actually challenging uh, the name change because even though it was a uh, you know, a name, Dowling Street was dedicated to, you know, a Confederate era figure. But in terms of personal timeline and personal memory, you know, people were born and raised and had their children and, you know, on Dowling Street. And so, you know, the name change, any sort of renaming, um, reframing of monuments and in space it's always complicated. You know, there's always um, multiple voices that need to be considered. And so the name change was one of those. I think having the street renamed as, an, you know, um, changing it from Dowling to Emancipation is, you know, an incredible achievement. I think it, it speaks a lot to 
the power of community organizing and, you know, the awareness of the importance of the histories present in that, in that neighborhood. But, um, you know, there's always, it's, it's interesting seeing how personal memory and history don't always line up. And so, um, you know, I think, uh, that name change was, was just a really interesting moment to observe and to participate in. When you're describing this dynamic between the ways that people find belonging or making meaning in a park, I'm thinking about another project of yours that I've read about and um, been really interested to, to hear more from you on, which is the Friends of Angela Davis Park. Could you share a little bit about that project and kind of how you Again, this is another example where you you're you're intervening into public space with your critical work. Absolutely. Friends of Angela Davis Park was a collaborative project between myself and collaborator Gabriel Martinez, who is a Houston-based artist. And so um the way the project originated was Gabriel had in his own work a practice of producing park signs for radical thinkers and thinking about what would, um, kind of putting these signs out in the public as these interventions and gestures, reshifting um, how we think about how park spaces are named. And so Angela Davis Park was a sign that he created during his time at the core program. And so uh, the sign had been put up in public and for, you know, various reasons, his park signs um, in other areas had been removed and Angela Davis Park remained. Gabriel and I started working together on multiple projects at the time. And when uh, I was thinking through the Angela Davis Park sign in particular, because I have, you know, in my own practice, thinking about all the things that we've talked about with like uh, the built environment, relationships to land and, and various things, we had a conversation and I was, you know, thinking, okay, what if Angela Davis Park was an actual park space? Like, what if we treated it like that? And so that's how Friends of Angela Davis Park came to exist. It was a collaboration between myself and Gabriel where we used Park Programming Committee as a model for developing all of this programming that took place in this vacant lot that had the Angela Davis Park sign. And so we invited um, various artists, community members, poets, um, just people that were interested in what we were doing to join us in a series of public programs that took place in that uh, vacant lot. And so it was an ongoing project and we produced literature thinking about public space in Houston. As your listeners may be aware, Angela Davis has dedicated a lot of her work to prison abolition. And so, um, through previous projects, I was very aware of Houston's relationship to private prisons. Houston was where the previous organization was the CCA, which is formerly uh, the Corrections Corporation of America. It was one of the first private prison corporations, which then went on to, I think, work with the INS to develop kind of immigrant detention facilities in the Houston area. 
which is another conversation that's ongoing. But we were thinking about Houston's relationship to the private prison industry in particular. And so we developed literature thinking about the range of public and private space, um, prisons being on one side of that, park spaces being on another side of that, and really thinking through all of these various relationships. It was a really incredible project. Um, it came to an end during our time uh, with Friends of Angela Davis Park. It actually uh, was included on Google Maps <laughs> as a park space. Um, someone, we're not sure who, but people were maintaining the grounds. Like we would come out and trash would be picked up. The grass would be mowed. It was a really interesting moment. Um, but then eventually the land that, uh, the park sign was on was taken over by restaurant parking. The sign was pulled up and then the project came to an end. Um, so it was a really interesting, um, kind of moment to intervene in this, uh, space and have people think about these relationships between park, public space, private space, and kind of the spectrum of those relationships. You've done really remarkable work in, in um, researching the dynamics of actual public spaces and speculating to create new ones um, critically and creatively. Do you feel more of an inclination to kind of work with like established city and parks groups, or instead to create spaces of your own? I think both modes of working are really important to my practice. I, um, you know, on one hand, by creating these interventions and, um, you know, these kind of public collaborative art projects that take place in the public sphere, I'm able to ask and engage in a particular set of questions that are different than when I'm working directly and doing research with existing community groups and, you know, these kinds of um, public spaces that have like relationships to the city um, in a different way. And so I think both modes of working are really important for my work because I can ask different sets of questions. So uh, when I think about how my practice is evolving, you know, um, I think they're both are going to continue to be ways that I think through, um, the built environment relationships to land and public space and private space. In addition to, you know, continuing to work on, um, you know, kind of more studio based work, photography, object making and writing, because those are all different aspects of my practice that you know, deal with various questions, including including the ones that we've talked about today with monuments and in park spaces. Regina Agu, thank you so much for, for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been an, a really great conversation and I appreciate it. You can listen to Monument Lab and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, remember to leave a rating or review. It really helps. The Monument Lab podcast is supported by the Serdna Foundation. This podcast is written and produced by Paul Farber and Justin Geller. Designer and associate producer is William Roy Hodgson. Sound engineer, Justin Geller. Editorial coordinator, Steph Garcia. All music on the podcast is original by Mokita. I'm your host, Paul Farber. 
For more, visit us at monumentlab.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 